0: The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me you're going to go die and go to hell. I know for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this
1: is pretty one work.
0: What's the problem? And goes, Don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I would have nailed Carl Williams to a coffee table and just of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom. A cherub face, cherub face little boy who, 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 who who's, who's a life would be. I'd harm someone each time. I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount, especially at first. An enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back in and stronger. The Children of Thunder were a cult of former Mormons who committed five murders in the year 2000. They believed these brutal killings would bring harmony to the world and begin Christ's millennial reign of peace.
1: Their leader, Taylor Helzer, convinced his followers he had the gift of revelation and truly spoke the word of God. And according to him, God was super into drugs, sex trafficking, kidnapping, extortion, murder and dismemberment. Welcome to the Children of Thunder Cult Murders Part 1. Hi, I'm Barney Black.
0: And I'm Tara Saraband, And
1: this is Bloody Murder.
0: We are a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia.
1: And indeed around the globe.
0: As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones.
1: If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you.
0: Plague restrictions have been eased a bit in Melbourne, so we're in the same room again and it's weird.
1: Stop looking at me. I'm not used to it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm
0: uncomfortable with this whole thing. I just completely <laughs> adapted. I. Why am I not at home? I don't know if I like it. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, devastatingly attractive and generous patrons.
1: We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story.
0: If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com.
1: As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our You're Gonna Need a Tetanus Shot for That first season, (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes.
0: As well as exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where Tara attempts to lick her own elbows whilst Barney laughs. That is a true story. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah, I came close, but I didn't quite make it. You really didn't make it. I was pretty close. So close. So close.
1: Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges.
0: And of course, you're automatically entered into the drawer for our monthly giveaways.
1: All right, Tara, let's get murdery.
0: Yes, let's. On August 7, 2000, a man riding a jet ski on the Mokelumne River in Northern California, probably on his daily commute to work, spotted a large black duffel bag that had washed up on the riverbank.
1: Oh, I'll have that then.
0: Well wondering if perhaps it was full of money or something else cool, he rode over to the bag. Unzipping it, he was initially confused and then outright mortified to find it contained a human torso. Later that afternoon, someone working at the marina nearby discovered another duffel bag floating under a dock. This one contained a severed human head. A third bag was found by a marine biologist who was doing a survey of an island in the river.
1: It too was full of grizzly treats. It
0: was. All up, nine bags of body parts were discovered. The Sacramento County Coroner spent a week working on this morbid puzzle before piecing together the bodies of three people. To understand how anyone could think murdering people could help bring a reign of peace, joy and love to the world, you first need to meet Taylor Helzer. And, oh, he's a piece of work. Glenn Taylor Helzer was born on July 26, 1970. Valentine's Day. It's uh, Yes. Yeah, it was very romantic, like giving birth always is. He was the first child of insurance salesman Father Jerry and part-time physical therapist Mother Karma, who were both devout Mormons. Glenn, who they called by his middle name Taylor, was the golden boy of his middle-class family and could do no wrong in the eyes of his parents and siblings. His little brother Justin was born on February 12, 1972, followed by little sister Heather. The family moved around a lot when the kids were young, but eventually settled in Pacheco, California, near San Francisco. Taylor could quote scripture from the Book of Mormon from an early age, and his family considered him to be very special. He was the star of the family, and his little brother Justin was a supporting player from birth. His whole life, Taylor reinforced this paradigm by telling Justin, I'm number one, and you're number two. My older brother tried that on me too, but it did not work.
1: I'm number one and you're number Mm -hmm. two. That's what my wee says to my poo.
0: Oh, Barney. Taylor's parents, particularly his mother Karma, believed Taylor received religious insight straight from the big guy upstairs. It wasn't just the Helzer family who treated Taylor like God's gift to the world either. Taylor was popular and charismatic in the church and at school. Justin was not either of those things. He was shy and docile and had hardly any friends. In their teens, the Helzer kids went to live with their granddad Doyle Sorensen, for a while. He was super religious and possibly not entirely sane. Once he claimed to have seen Jesus Christ in his yard, he said it wasn't a vision, but actual real Jesus, who stuck around to chat with Doyle for hours.
1: He probably wanted to hear Doyle's thoughts on the magic underpants he made his Mormon believers wear.
0: Ah yes, some Mormons wear special undergarments called a temple garment to remind them of their covenant with the Mormon temple. Many Mormons believe the underwear provides spiritual protection.
1: So do you think their granddad was pro or anti-magic underpants, Taylor? Oh,
0: he was definitely pro-magic underpants.
1: Taylor was impressed by his grandfather's religious zealotry and personal friendship with Jesus. Taylor claimed to be receiving messages from God by the age of 14. His family told him he had the gift of revelation and by God did he believe them.
0: Both Helzer boys grew up to be over 6 foot 4 with dark hair. So it's pretty much just luck and geography that stopped me from dating one of them.
1: At 17, Taylor joined the National Guard in Texas. Here he learned about the wicked ways of non-Mormons. The drinking, the swearing, the skirt chasing, the podcasting. Ah! And he would lecture his sinning counterparts about the errors of their ways.
0: Some of them did not appreciate this and found him to be a total buzzkill.
1: But Taylor didn't care, Tara. Mm -mm. He figured he was right about this like he was about everything else. After his stint in the National Guard, it was time for Taylor to go on a mission, as all young Mormon men do. They get sent to another country or region to teach the Book of Mormon and the LDS Church for two years. Taylor was chuffed to go to Brazil on his mission. His intelligence and charisma made him well-liked and an effective teacher, and he broke records for recruiting people. Taylor studied the scriptures with a furor and obsessed over interpreting them. He'd stay up all night writing revelations in his journal.
0: Dear diary, today I found out that I'm a very, very, very special boy, for I am a direct mouthpiece for the word of God. Whoa, jokes, I knew that already. Smiley face.
1: (laughs) He was particularly taken with cataclysmic events in latter days, according to a fellow missionary named Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan told author Robert Scott in the book Unholy Sacrifice that Taylor would preach that technology was going to be eliminated and rendered useless in the last days and the church would be led by warrior prophets. Apparently Taylor imagined a Mad Max-like dystopian future with groups of people led by warrior priests They would live in fortresses, practice survival skills and fight the dark forces. The landscape would be a mixture of the Book of Revelations, Chaos and the Lord of the Rings type setting. Yeah. Like, see, Tara, this sounds like the last five video games I've played.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it really does. It's, it's a lot of wank, really.
1: Taylor would bring his far-out ideas to the mission president and they would debate them for hours. It didn't take long for Taylor to decide he was more of a spiritual leader than the mission president and other spiritual leaders in the church. He came back from his mission disillusioned that church leaders weren't smart enough to see things his way. Fellow Mormon and cousin of the Helzer Brothers, Charney Hoffman, told author Robert Scott, In talking to him, he would become very upset, very irritated if you didn't agree with his perspective. It was hard for him to communicate with people who didn't see things the way he saw them. After his mission, Taylor started a relationship with a woman named Anne he'd gone to school with but he wouldn't date her until she joined the LDS church and got baptised.
0: Well, no, of course not. Sacrifices need to be made if you want a slice of Taylor pie. Yum. <laughs> Mm-mm. Yuck. Yeah. His relationship with Anne didn't stop Taylor from obsessing about the future breakdown of modern society. He and Justin became big fans of James Bo Gritz, an American former United States Army Special Forces officer. After serving in the Vietnam War and retiring from the military, Gritz worked on attempted prisoner of war rescues, like that Chuck Norris movie. Oh, yeah. He was anti-big government and would say, tyranny always wears the badge of authority. Ironically enough, he ran for president of the US in 1992. His slogan was, God, guns, and grits. Did he win? Ah, oh, well, that depends on who you ask. And he taught survival classes because, of course, he did. Taylor and Ann got married in April 1993, but nobody told his little brother Justin, who was away on his mission at the time. Justin felt sad and dejected that he wasn't included.
1: You think he would have been used to that feeling already?
0: Yeah, <laughs> you would. <laughs> Soon after the honeymoon, things felt a shit for Anne and Taylor, and they ended up in couples counselling. But it didn't stop them from constantly arguing. According to Anne, and anyone else who's ever met Taylor, everything had to be done Taylor's way, and he'd never admit to being wrong. There were other issues as well, now that Taylor was living out of home and discovering the joys of technology. Anne believed Taylor had an unrealistic view of the world. <laughs> really <laughs> yeah don't say <laughs> he'd never been able to watch tv at his parents house but he could once he and ann lived together and he stayed up all night watching it he'd also go to game arcades on the way home from work and just lose track of time like an amish kid on rumspringer he wanted to try everything and by everything i mean he wanted to take drugs and have porno style sex He constantly nagged at Anne to reenact some porno moves with him, but Anne found them too extreme for her tastes.
1: Hey, baby, you want to do the wheelbarrow down the stairs?
0: Anne, spirit tells me that you need to do the rusty trombone with me at 7pm tonight. (laughs) Having two daughters did not help their marriage. It just gave them more to argue about. Anne is quoted in the book Unholy Sacrifice as saying, Taylor had a strong personality. He appeared to run the family. He was held up on a pedestal, especially by his mother, Karma. But everyone in the Helzer family looked up to Taylor. He was the golden child. Taylor became a stockbroker at a large firm called Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Being a silver-tongued snake oil salesman made him well suited to the role and he was promoted to branch manager quite quickly. In 1996, Taylor decided he wanted to try out the sinner lifestyle. He began smoking, drinking, and going clubbing. He grew out his straight guy haircut and started sporting a ponytail and a less squeaky, clean appearance.
1: Well, who can say no to a ponytail, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, do you, and do you think he dyed his magic Mormon underpants black?
0: Oh, he didn't have to, he just stopped washing them. Yeah. In 1997, Taylor started experimenting with drugs, including weed, coke, mushrooms and ecstasy. He'd stay out all night or all week. Sometimes he wouldn't even come home for several weeks at a time.
1: I guess he found some people willing to have porno sex with him.
0: Yeah, he did indeed. Ooh, rusty trombone for everybody. (laughs) Careful, I'm going to have to start dancing. It'll scare the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Anne stopped trusting him with their daughters and wouldn't let him take them out without her. Taylor began to seriously question the doctrines of the Mormon church, telling a family friend, I've been betrayed by the church, I got married, went on a mission... And it wasn't meant to be. I did everything I was supposed to do. I can no longer be a member of the church.
1: I did everything right and all I got was this lousy T-shirt.
0: Yeah, and it's not even black.
1: So yeah, it was the church's fault he didn't like his life. Specifically, he believed that it was the church wasn't being run the way the founders initially envisaged.
0: Not enough drinking, smoking weed, coke, mushrooms, ecstasy and porno sex?
1: Nah. Nah, clearly not enough rusty trombone No. Taylor was excommunicated from the Mormon Church for drug use in 1998 And Justin went with him because he's the wind beneath his wings Justin always followed in Taylor's footsteps So of course he joined the National Guard too Becoming a military policeman in Germany for a while Colleagues considered him too nice to be an MP though in our research, everyone said of Justin that he was a kind and gentle person, although apparently also a very loud and messy eater. Nom,
0: nom, 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 nom,
1: nom. Yeah, that's an actual recording of Justin eating.
0: Yeah, mm. Mm, true story.
1: When Taylor started experimenting with drugs, well, Justin did too. Of course. Anne reaffirmed everything we'd read with this quote. Justin was a follower. He lacked self-confidence. He would never stand up to or argue with Taylor. Around this time, the Hells’s mother, Karma, did a self-help course called Harmony Impact Training in Utah.
0: Yeah, look, it actually sounds a lot like Landmark Forum, from my experience with them anyway.
1: The group spends four long days in a room confronting their shortcomings. There's a group leader who rules over everyone and he has a lot of helpers. He breaks everyone down, sometimes going at them so hard that they run from the room in tears or throw up. So it sounds like Festivus on Seinfeld, really, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it does,
0: but actually a lot less fun than Festivus.
1: <laughs> then he works on building them back up in line with Harmony Impact Training's worldview. That there is no right or wrong, there are only results. Karma I thought this experience was the bee's knees and convinced her increasingly unhinged sons and many other family members to go do it too. It wasn't a good idea.
0: Mm, hardly ever is.
1: Taylor and Justin's cousin, Charney Hoffman, went through the course and said, The staffers do the facilitator's bidding. If anybody doesn't look like they're getting with the program, they teach that person to hate themselves. Impact was very emotionally manipulative. I know a lot of people who snapped because of going through it.
0: Although still married to Anne, Taylor started a relationship with a super attractive 22-year-old blonde woman named Carrie Furman. Born in 1976, Kerry's good looks were unable to shelter her from a tough upbringing. Her mum left when she was one, and she and her brother were raised by their dad, who worked two jobs to support them and wasn't around much. This meant Kerry had a lot of responsibility running the household from an early age. In 1998, Kerry started working as a waitress at the Pepper Mill restaurant in Concord, California. One day, Taylor Helzer came in, dressed in a suit and looking particularly sane. The two locked eyes and they both thought to themselves, Damn, you are hot! Instead of leaving a tip, Taylor left his business card and a credit card and told Carrie to buy herself something nice. She was suitably impressed. She didn't use his credit card, but she did call him and romance bloomed. Kerry had been in an abusive relationship prior to Taylor, so she was perfectly warmed up to fall for his charismatic and manipulative ways. They eventually moved in together in a share house with Justin and some other people. After a while, Taylor decided he didn't feel like working anymore, but he also didn't want to be broke. He came up with a plan to convince his employer that he'd had a nervous breakdown so he could get disability payments. He'd take a bunch of drugs and not sleep for days, then rub peanut butter in his hair to complete the whole I'm insane look before going into work.
1: We use Vegemite in Australia.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I prefer Promite when I'm rubbing it in my hair. It was successful and he was put on disability support payments. At least one of the doctors Taylor was sent to diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. Now, he definitely has a few roos loose in the top paddock, but it's hard to trust this diagnosis considering the circumstances surrounding it were so manufactured.
1: Do you like my nutty roo in the top paddock? It's got pockets. Oh,
0: pockets. I love pockets. Taylor coerced Kerry into doing the Impact Harmony training course too. Actually, coerced is too nice of a way to put it. On an episode of True Crime with Aphrodite Jones, Kerry said she and Taylor were dropping a friend off at the course. Now, unbeknownst to Kerry, Taylor had signed her up, paid the fee and packed her a bag. When they were seeing their friend off, Taylor gave Kerry her bag and shoved her along into Impact Harmony training without her consenting to it. Taylor believed it was paramount that those close to him all did the course because it would help them understand where he was coming from. After Carrie was dragged through the brainwashing ringer of Harmony Impact training, Taylor convinced her to pose for Playboy magazine. He was saving the world by liberating one titty at a time. Carrie figured her boobs weren't quite big enough for saving the world or Playboy, so she borrowed some money for a boob job from Taylor's Mormon dad and went up to a D-cup. It did the trick, and she ended up posing nude in Playboy under the name Carissa Fair. Surprisingly, she didn't use her original surname of Furman, which is a missed opportunity in this case. Playboy described her as a cross between Claudia Schiffer and Pamela Anderson. Taylor ruled the sharehouse he and Carrie lived in and everyone had to do what he said.
1: Like a little cult with training wheels on it.
0: My first cult, by Mattel. He became increasingly into going to raves and taking and selling ease. He was also plotting and scheming a lot.
1: Mm, capers and hijinks, I expect.
0: He decided to create a couples counselling program, which... He would, of course, run. He wanted it to be called See." Oh, like intimacy. So clever. I clever wordplay. Get it. Yes, and he would guide couples to higher realms of intimacy and get them closer to God.
1: By getting them to pose for nudie magazines.
0: Well, he's very wise. You just don't get it.
1: Oh, that's for sure.
0: See that van outside? The... No, look. See that yellow van? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're here to pick you up and take you to Impact Harmony Training, Barney. You're welcome. I don't want to go. I don't care. You're doing the first two levels, but you don't need to do the third because, well, you'll find out why.
1: Because I have to pose nude for Playboy.
0: Yes, and then I can just teach you all the teachings myself because I'm very wise.
1: But Taylor's schemes needed money, lots and lots of money. So he talked Kerry into becoming an erotic dancer at the Gold Club in San Francisco. Remember that place?
0: Ah, oh, that was a crazy night.
1: It was. Here she could earn 500 to $1,000 a night and taking a bunch of ecstasy helped Kerry not mind the work. Didn't pay us, did they?
0: No, if I remember correctly, we paid them.
1: But that wasn't enough for Taylor. To get more money, he decided to start pimping Kerry out.
0: Ah, Pimpact Harmony Training. That's their Level 2 course.
1: His plans also changed. Into Me became a way of looking at the world that he called the 12 Principles of Magic. And you're going to love these, Tara. Oh, no,
0: I do love these.
1: These principles were supposed to hasten Jesus' return to earth and bring peace and joy. How? Who fuck knows? Uh, but a lot, of drug, know. a lot of drugs were involved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't get it.
1: He printed these principles up and stuck them on the wall for all in his trainer wheel cult to see. And this is what they say. Number one, he was already perfect so he could do no wrong.
0: Number two, there was no such thing as right and wrong.
1: Number three, he was all-powerful and the creator of everything in his life.
0: Number four, life's always right and he embraced the results of it.
1: Number five, all the results of life he created himself.
0: Number six, he believed nothing and perceived the world without fear.
1: Number seven, his perceptions were always right.
0: There's a theme emerging there, isn't there? There really is. Number eight, unconditional, fearless love was the most profound love in the universe.
1: Number nine, spirit knew everything.
0: Number 10, he gave total control by losing control.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. Number 11, what goes around comes around.
0: Number 12, there was a higher person than himself, Jesus Christ, the son of the father.
1: Now, if you think that's a load of nonsensical <laughs> horseshit, you should hear our first season. Yes. But, um, yeah, none of that makes any sense.
0: It, it really doesn't. Um, But I would say that it's probably linking quite closely to some of the Impact Harmony sort of, uh, like, ridiculous slogans and things that they have in those courses.
1: What comes around goes around. Well,
0: that's just a fucking Justin Timberlake song as far as <laughs> I know. Like. A- <laughs> I just I think unless you were on the drugs he was on and really narcissistic and deluded, it's probably not going to make sense.
1: Well, maybe Taylor saw that this wasn't really tracking very well. So Taylor changed the name of his imaginary new program from the 12 Principles of Magic to Transform America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See, that scans better, doesn't
0: it? Oh, yeah, that's powerful. Well,
1: I like Transformers.
0: You love Transformers. Yeah.
1: Optimus Prime, he's their leader.
0: I know. He's a good guy.
1: It was going to be a big, powerful institution and he'd be the leader. (laughs) shocker. He'd talk about it for dozens of hours on end and get pissed off if someone thought he wasn't making sense or disagreed, which was probably a lot.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, only if he could read their thoughts.
1: Kerry said, if you didn't go along with him, he'd talk to you for hours. (laughs) You shouldn't think of things like that. You should think of things this way. Taylor was in control of everything. He was relentless. He was on drugs. If you disagreed, he'd say, you're stuck in your stuff, you're not on my level. And if you disagreed, you were evil.
0: For somebody who claims there's no right and wrong, he certainly was a pedantic bastard.
1: Kerry said she beat herself up for not seeing things his way and sometimes she'd just say she did to make him shut the fuck up.
0: Oh, I've been there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kerry shared her motivation for doing this when she said, For the first time in my life, I really felt special and loved. I was afraid I would lose that if I disagreed with him.
0: We'll be back with more of the Children of Thunder cult murders after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? What time is it? It's True Crime Nerd time. Woo! Oh, yeah, baby.
1: Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Keep kicking the gangster pick. Twelve bums.
0: <laughs> oh, why so many bums? Twelve. We don't need twelve.
1: Oh, I've got twelve.
0: I know. you got the power of twelve. That's for fucking <laughs> sure. True Crime nerd time. True Crime nerd time.
1: True crime, time. I loved you, crime. true crime No Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that's scratched your crime-obsessed itch Tara. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from the brilliantly named Indigo Wolf.
0: Oh, we know Indigo Wolf. They have amazing Angora rabbits. I follow those rabbits on Instagram. Yeah, me
1: too. (laughs) And Indigo writes, hi guys, my name is Indigo Wolf and I love bloody murder. I've been listening on and off since the beginning.
0: On and off? (laughs) On and off? Off?
1: Well, you better get back on that, yeah, Indigo. Yeah,
0: there's no room for off over here, Indigo. Not if you want those rapids to snow.
1: <laughs> Don't threaten the bunnies.
0: I wasn't. I couldn't actually do it. <laughs>
1: well, Indigo writes for True Crime No Time. I thought you guys should talk about the Gits. Ah. They were a band in the late 80s and early 90s in Seattle that made totally badass music until their lead singer Mia Sapata, was murdered. She was walking home around 2am when she was beaten, raped and strangled. I heard about this in the Case File podcast, never heard of it, a long time ago. And it played the song Bob, Cousin O at the end. The song wasn't released until after Mia died and the band did not know until then that she'd already recorded the vocals for it and a few other songs. The album was called Enter, colon, the Conquering Chicken.
0: (laughs) Enter the colon of the, No.
1: No. No, it was just... No, no. I'm reading out the punctuation in Yeah,
0: because that's what people do, right? That's right. Yeah, makes sense.
1: This album and concerts from other bands, including Nirvana,
0: were used to
1: raise money to hire a private investigator for three years until the money eventually ran out. The case went unsolved for 10 years, Tara, before the arsehat who killed her was finally caught and convicted. Jesus Mesquia, who had a history of violence and indecent exposure was convicted with DNA evidence in 2004, but still maintains his innocence.
0: Yeah, of course he does.
1: I think the whole story is terrible, but the Gits made some amazing music while they could, and Mia's lyrics are poetic and beautiful. Thank you so much for making so much fucking podcasts for me to <laughs> fill the quarantine with. It's helping me survive my family. <laughs> and keep kicking against the Pricks. We will. Best wishes, Indigo Wolf. Well, thanks, Indigo. That band is the Gits the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime note, time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. So, 2020 just doesn't let up, does it? No. I'm thinking of sleeping till next year.
0: That's probably not healthy, dude.
1: Is everything going on in life and the way this year is panning out interfering with your ability to be happy?
0: Is something stopping you from achieving your goals?
1: Are you lonely in isolation, missing your old life?
0: Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder.
1: We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health.
0: BetterHelp is there for you, no matter where you are.
1: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist that suits you.
0: You can connect in a safe and private online environment, not around people.
1: And you can start communicating in under 24 hours.
0: It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help.
1: You can communicate with your counsellor any
0: You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All
1: without having to sit in a germy, uncomfortable waiting room.
0: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed.
1: It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available.
0: And it's a service you can access worldwide.
1: You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships and trauma.
0: Anything you share is confidential.
1: It's convenient, professional and very affordable.
0: If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp.
1: And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder.
0: Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health.
1: Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counsellor that suits you.
0: If you don't believe us, check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website
1: so visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder that's better h-e-l-p pcom forward slash bloody murder
0: you've heard the stories of bloody murder and horrendous homicide but what about the rest of the crimes people fall victim to every day what about the burglar who broke into famous people's homes what happened to the forensic chemist that falsified evidence who are the fraudsters arsonists stalkers hackers and more I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a true crime podcast bringing you stories of the non-murderous crimes you didn't know you needed to hear. Be sure to find Mugshot on your favorite podcatcher and on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod. But until then, stay out of trouble or you may end up pictured in your very own Mugshot.
1: And now for the conclusion of part one of the Children of Thunder Cult Murders.
0: As another fundraising endeavour for Impact America, Taylor Helzer came up with the idea for the Feline Club. It would be a place for rich men to meet attractive women and possibly have sex with them. Fucking revolutionary!
1: Rich men? Hot women? Why has nobody thought to bring the two of them together before?
0: The men would have money but probably not be hot.
1: And the women would be hot and want money.
0: It really is a revelation. He had another element too. Drugs on platters.
1: Hot women, rich men, drugs on on platters of purest gold. On <laughs> 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 platters of the, the purest food. gold.
0: Hey presto, it's a licence to print money.
1: Why did nobody ever think of this before, Tara? It
0: takes a true visionary to come up with insights this deep. And, of course, Taylor made Kerry help with his escort service by getting her to try and convince some of the erotic dancers she worked with to join up. Everything is just multi-level marketing, really. But Taylor got distracted and forgot about this idea and set up a meth lab in the garage instead. Kerry was outraged, but he didn't care. For his next grand money-making scheme, Taylor came up with another brilliant foolproof plan he called Mexico. He'd import young girls from Mexico who were about 14 years old, have them live in the sharehouse with him, Justin, Kerry and their flatmates, and he'd pimp them out too. He wanted to pimp them out to rich businessmen who worked at his former employer, Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. He'd have the teenage girls take compromising pictures with the men during sexy time and then extort money from them to keep it a secret – So why would Taylor want to get involved in sex trafficking, underage girls and extortion? Well, let's hear it in his words. He said, I'm on my life's mission to impact America. It's my calling from God. My mission is to spread love to everybody.
1: Perhaps I just don't get it, but I'm not seeing any love here and I'm sure God's saying I want nothing to do with this fucking lunatic. (laughs) Oh,
0: God, yes. Well, Taylor certainly loves himself, though.
1: Well, that much is very Uh... clear.
0: Taylor's friend Jessica Chompf said in the book Unholy Sacrifice that Impact America was to be a self realization course to learn more about yourself. He would get things rolling by starting a club. Everyone there would be beautiful and rich. Taylor would be the one that got them together. It would be a kind of porno fantasy island, a Disneyland of sex. A
1: porno true crime island.
0: Grab a beer and pull out your anal beads. (laughs) You're listening to True Crime Island.
1: Oh, it just all sounds like the delusions of a horny, unstable 15-year-old boy.
0: Yeah, it really does, the whole thing. Horny, unstable, 15 years old. Kerry eventually got sick of being Taylor's puppet, and he got sick of her lack of enthusiasm for being his puppet. He suggested she move out, and thankfully she did. Taylor regretted letting her go so easily when uh, Kerry became Playboy's Miss September in the year 2000. What Taylor seemed to learn from his experience with Kerry was that sometimes super-hot chicks had more life options than those that were not super-hot, which made them harder to control in the long run. He needed someone with less opportunities than Kerry had if he wanted her to be completely committed to doing all of his bidding. Dawn Goldman fit the bill perfectly. She'd had a difficult upbringing with a domineering father and uncaring mother. She was married at 18, her first son died soon after birth and she got divorced not long after the birth of her second son. In 1996, at the age of 22, Dawn got herself a meth habit. This led to her getting fired from her job and losing custody of her son to her ex-husband. She lived in her car and tried to kill herself by overdosing. Dawn was raised an evangelical Christian but lost faith in it. When recovering from her suicide attempt in a mental ward, she decided to find faith for herself and her son and joined the LDS. She felt they listened to her and gave her a much-needed sense of community and purpose.
1: In 1998, Dawn started attending services at the Mormon Church. She met Taylor and Justin Helzer when she went to a murder mystery dinner held at a Mormon temple on Memorial Day.
0: It's funny how often murder mystery events actually come up in real-life murder cases. Well, yeah,
1: we did that Mensa murder mystery episode earlier this year.
0: Yeah, we did.
1: Taylor and Justin stood out from the crowd as they were dressed all in black, not in Flanders wear. Mm-hmm. Dawn was gaga about Taylor from the get-go, but she was not a playboy model. She was a short, average-looking, dumpy woman and using her furry checkbook wouldn't raise nearly the kind of scratch Taylor was hoping for. <laughs> Justin said hello to her, then slunk back into Taylor's shadow.
0: He was very comfortable there.
1: It was a good fit.
0: Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> was just so used to it, you know. It was automatic.
1: A week later, Dawn saw the brothers at church. She fell under Taylor's sway. They started hanging out, and she'd listen to him speak at length about his revelations. He pressured her to go to the first two levels of Impact Harmony training, but he didn't insist she could go do the third level, as he said, she'd learn more from listening to him and reading books he recommended.
0: Yeah, so he's better than impact harmony training now, is he?
1: I think he's be- I think she's better than everything.
0: I can tell.
1: Dawn said Taylor was totally charismatic and dynamic. I came to believe that he was a prophet of God, a seer and a revelator. He communicated directly with God and disseminated revelations from God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like more porno sex.
1: Justin had some plans of his own. He wrote his goals for the year in his journal. They included find a sexual lover. And become a druid. So he didn't want an asexual lover.
0: No, I guess not an asexual lover. No, what, asexual lover? Uh Uh-uh. Sexual lover? Oh, yeah.
1: He wrote a lot about wanting a girlfriend and obsessed over his diet and exercise. He worried he'd never get a girlfriend and envied Taylor's way with the ladies. Justin liked getting dressed up all in black, including thigh-high boots and a cape, and going to goth clubs.
0: (laughs) He did. He loved a bit of that. That was like the most flamboyant he ever got.
1: Sometimes Dawn got dressed up and went with him. (laughs) <laughs> Some of our research said she was romantically involved with Justin Some said she was involved with Taylor It's hard to know who was doing what to whom when it comes to these knuckleheads
0: Yeah, seriously, I I couldn't tell you <laughs> I don't know I looked really extensively into it And I'm like, you know what, let's just assume they were all banging
1: Hey, I think this is my favourite bit, Tara mm-hmm. Taylor impressed Chicks by telling them he could communicate with animals.
0: Yes, in the example. (laughs) He
1: told told one girl he was seeing that he communicated with a fly.
0: Oh, powerful.
1: He said he told it, If you land on my food, I'll have to kill you. Suitably quaking in his little fly boots, the fly communicated back that he wouldn't and then flew off.
0: Hey, baby. (laughs) If that didn't flood your basement, nothing will. A friend of Dawn's named Deborah Callahan, who claimed to be a practising white witch, spent a lot of time with our little cult members. Like everyone else, she fell for Taylor's charms and they had an affair. She was into massage and gave full-body massages with happy endings to Taylor, Justin and Dawn for spiritual reasons. I'm just happy to hear Justin's getting some, you know. In January 2000, Taylor got up at the crack of dawn and they both went to the car park of the Mormon temple to talk as apparently Satan couldn't listen to them when they were on Mormon property. <laughs> According to an article in SF Gate, guardian angels circled as Dawn sat with Helzer in a car outside the Mormon temple in Oakland and listened to his plan to hasten Christ's return to earth. She said he made her feel like a child in its parents' arms. It was in the parking lot, without no ZBLs above eavesdropping on them, that Taylor told Dawn his plan for transform America. He said he needed a core group of three people for him to become an official prophet of God, and obviously he already had Justin, so he needed Dawn. He told her, Spirit's telling me it's time you get to know everything. Taylor started a lot of his sentences by saying, Spirit is telling me. This proved to those around him that he was communicating directly with the words of God.
1: Spirit's telling me you need to take your clothes off for money. <laughs>
0: Spirit is telling me we need to sell more ease at goth clubs or Satan will burn down the earth.
1: Spirit's telling me Taylor Helzer is a wanker.
0: <laughs> Spirit's telling me Justin and Dawn should run. Dawn believed Taylor was receiving instructions directly from God, so she was cool with it when Taylor told her that people would need to be kidnapped and murdered for them to execute God's plan and make Transform America happen.
1: Transform America was supposed to bring harmony to the world and bring in Christ's millennial reign of peace, so obviously murder would be involved.
0: Oh yeah, kidnapping, extortion and murder. But there was still one missing piece of the puzzle. Taylor needed someone to launder the extortion money for him, someone who he could charm the pants off and have do his bidding. He settled on an impressionable young woman named Selena Bishop, who he whined and dined and controlled essentially, but more on Selena later. According to the Contra Costa Times, in May 2000, Taylor ran out into the rain in his baby doll nighty. In May 2000, Taylor ran out into the rain and raised his hands skyward to receive a revelation. Afterwards, he told his friends, If people aren't loyal to me, I'm just going to have to kill them. Justin, Dawn and Taylor moved in together to plan the next stage of Impact America. Taylor reckoned he needed a million to get his American dream happening. He named their three-person cult the Children of Thunder. In order to raise capital for his mission from God, Taylor wanted to kidnap 5 people who were former clients of his when he was a stockbroker and extort money out of them. These funds were to be placed in Selena Bishop's account and then funneled to Taylor. The 5 people who they kidnapped would be killed, and so would Selena Bishop. Taylor told Justin to get a gun and gave Dawn some errands to run too. Dawn went to Sears and bought a reciprocating saw and blades. She also bought two tasers, three ski masks and pairs of water ski gloves and some weights, but not for lifting. Daily Children
1: of Thunder meetings took place every morning. In fact, they all got up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> where they pray and plan their next step. Dawn said up this period. When Taylor <laughs> talked, I believe the spirit was talking through him. We believed, as the children of thunder, we were declaring war on Satan. This was so Satan wouldn't get the opportunity to be loosed upon this earth.
0: (laughs) Too late.
1: Taylor came up with another brilliant and foolproof money-making scheme called Brazil. For this cunning plan, the three of them were to adopt Brazilian orphans, bring them to the US and train them to be assassins who did what Taylor told them. They would then be sent to kidnap the 12 apostles of the LDS, who Taylor felt had gone astray, as well as its president and his 2 counselors. councillors. They'd make the hostages call the media and tell them they'd been kidnapped by the US government. Of course, everyone would just blindly believe that, and in the chaos that ensued, Taylor would be recognised as a unifying force in the Mormon Church. Not only would he be appointed the new president of the Mormon faith by the kidnapped old president, but it would all go down on live TV, Tara. So it must be real.
0: Yay! Back to that like 14-year-old boy's fantasy, huh?
1: Taylor, Justin and Dawn would be the new leaders and pick 12 new apostles. They would kill the old apostles, the president and his two counsellors. It was the only way to bring love and peace to the world. But before they did that, they had to do the extortion scam. Taylor became increasingly manic and coincidentally was taking a lot of meth.
0: That is a weird coincidence, and yet it happens a lot.
1: Taylor wanted the targets of his extortion plan to be elderly ex-clients, people who already lived a long life, and he figured wouldn't put up much of a fight. For this mission, Taylor and Justin would dress up in suits, fancy, Mm -hmm. and carry briefcases with pistols, tasers, handcuffs, leg irons, and a small blowtorch in them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I have in my purse. Emergency, to tell you the truth. emergency welding.
1: <laughs> Sunday, July 30th, 2000 was when the Day of Thunder was to go down.
0: Isn't that a Tom Cruise movie? Yeah, close enough. Yeah.
1: Taylor's ex client, Bob White, had the largest stock portfolio. He was an elderly man who lived alone, so he was at the top of the hit list. The toddlers of Chunda <laughs> sat in their lounge room of their share house and prayed. Then they declared war on Satan. At 1pm Dawn bought some handcuffs and leg irons from a sex shop. Ray, Justin and Taylor dressed in their fancy suits and drove to old man Bob's with a ruse to say they were in the neighbourhood talking to a client and decided just to pop in for a visit. Dawn drove behind them in Justin's pickup truck. They planned to keep Bob alive long enough to sign over some checks and put them in Selena Bishop's name and then kill Bob. Lucky for Bob... He wasn't home
0: yeah i feel like if anyone's actually receiving direct messages from god in this story it might actually be bob white
1: yeah bob white has god's (laughs) favor i think next on the list were taylor's former clients annette and ivan steinman annette and ivan had met each other during world war ii in southern california while ivan was serving in the coast guard they got married in 1945 and had two daughters nancy and judy According to Judy, our parents were always interested in our lives. They made sure we did our homework. They watched over us and cared how we did. Both were big animal lovers and had birds, cats, dogs, chipmunks, a monkey and horses when the kids were girls.
0: Please tell me the monkey rode the horse. Whilst
1: juggling chipmunks. It's okay, the chipmunks were into it. And the horse? Yeah, sure, why not?
0: Consent is very important.
1: Judy told author Robert Scott, mum ruled the roost." They were each half of a whole, very in tune with each other. They loved each other very much. Ivan had been a credit card division supervisor for Chevron, where Annette also worked. After retiring, he became a real estate agent. Although financially strained, when they first married, through hard work, the Stymans amassed a small fortune. They invested their money with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, which is where Taylor had become their financial advisor.
0: At 8pm that night, Taylor and Justin knocked on the door of the Steinmans' house in Concord while Dawn waited in Justin's pickup truck, chain smoking. In a very unfortunate twist of fate, the Steinmans were home that night. After entering the property, Taylor and Justin forced the Steinmans to go back to their place with them at gunpoint. Once inside, they were handcuffed and made to sit on the couch. Taylor and Dawn questioned the couple separately about their finances so they could make sure they were telling the truth. Taylor told them, I'm in trouble and I need a lot of money. People are after me and I need to get out of the country. He said he needed the Steinmans to sign some checks over to him and then they'd leave them handcuffed there and once they were far enough away, they'd call the police to rescue the couple. Dawn was sure that Annette could tell Taylor was lying and he was planning on killing them. Taylor forced the Steinmans to take six Rohypnol tablets each. Rohypnol, known as the date rape drug, made the Steinmans super tired, which wasn't ideal as there were documents he wanted them to sign. Ivan and Annette were forced to write some checks: one for thirty-three thousand and the other for sixty-seven thousand to Selena Bishop. Annette was too out of it from being dosed to sign anything else. So Taylor put some meth in a pipe and lit it and blew it up her nostrils to try to make her more chipper. It didn't work. The next day, Taylor got Dawn to pretend to be Annette Steinman and call a manager of the Concord branch of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. The manager said the woman sounded very nervous and told him that she wanted to liquidate her investments. As she was able to answer all of the secret security questions, he set about doing what she asked. Taylor got Dawn to practice Annette's signature and she did a good enough job for him to decide that they didn't need the Steinmans anymore. Taylor and the others took the Steinmans into the bathroom. They'd come to by now and were struggling. Taylor took off his clothes so he wouldn't get blood on them and told Dawn and Justin to do the same, which, of course, they did.
1: How terrifying for the Steinmans being trapped in a bathroom with three lunatics in their underpants who were trying to kill them. Yeah,
0: I know, like... Truly, Taylor tried to suffocate Annette by putting his hands over her nose and mouth, but she fought him. She fought him hard. Justin did the same to Ivan, but Ivan wasn't giving up without a fight either. Next, they tried to suffocate the Steinmans by wrapping their heads in plastic sheeting, but that didn't have the desired effect. Frustrated, Taylor started banging Annette's head on the bathroom floor and against the toilet. So, of course, Justin started banging Ivan's head on the bathroom floor too. Looking on, Dawn recalled, "'I really couldn't believe this was happening. "'I just wanted them to die. "'I said to myself, hurry up and die so this will just be over.'"
1: Yeah, it's really about you, Dawn.
0: Yeah, it's always about you, Dawn. Justin pounded Ivan's head on the bathroom floor hard over and over again. Ivan's autopsy later showed that he died of a heart attack while this was happening. Taylor, enraged by how Annette was clinging to life, dragged her to the bathtub and stabbed her once in each lung. Then he slit her throat. That horrific note is where we're ending the story this week. Be sure to tune in next week for the conclusion of the Children of Thunder cult murders to hear about the ridiculousness of their extortion scam and the harrowing story of the murders they committed to tie up loose ends.
1: Whoa. Yeah, they do some more murders, right?
0: Yeah, three more if we're keeping count.
1: Hmm, what a story.
0: Oh, my God. It's uh, so bizarre and also so just horrific as well.
1: Hmm. Well, I have but one question, Tara.
0: Yes? What
1: is Aussie Az?
0: Aussie Az, are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one?
1: Yes, I would.
0: Now, Barney, you're a connoisseur of fine beverages, right? What? You've gotten super pissed from drinking oceans of beer, right, Barney?
1: Yes, indeed I have.
0: Have you ever been so drunk that you climbed into a reptile enclosure and attempted to ride a 5 metre or 16 foot crocodile? That
1: happened one time.
0: (laughs) And I've got the pictures. Well, that's exactly what a 36-year-old guy called Matthew Newman did 10 years ago. First, Newman went to a pub in Broome, Western Australia and got himself very drunk. So drunk, in fact, that he was kicked out of the pub for being too drunk.
1: You mean he was asked to leave for being too lovely.
0: Sure, that's what we say when it happens to you. The 800 kilo or 126 stone crocodile, whose name was Fatso, did not take kindly to a drunk fucker sitting on his back.
1: I'm sure he didn't dig his body shaming nickname too.
0: I'm not fat, I'm just big boned. I'm husky. Sergeant Roger Haynes of Broome, Police told journalists Fatso has taken offence to this and has spun around and bit this man on the right leg. The crocodile has let him go and he's been able to scale the fence again and leave the wildlife park. The owner of the reptile park, Malcolm Douglas, said that the crocodile was capable of killing a man with a single chomp. Um. Tidier eater than Justin. Malcolm said, Oh, the man who climbed the fence was fortunate because Fatso was a bit more sluggish than normal due to the cooler nights we've been experiencing in Broome. If it had been warmer and Fatso was more alert, we would have been dealing with a fatality. No person in their right mind would try to sit on a five-metre crocodile. Saltwater crocodiles, once they get hold of you, are not renowned for letting go. Malcolm also called Numi's behaviour bizarre and stupid. Now I'm going to add Lucky to that too. Lucky Numi was able to scamper back to the pub, bleeding heavily. He received surgery to serious wounds to his leg and had to spend some time in hospital recovering. Now, I don't care how drunk you are, do not fuck with crocodiles. Around two people are killed each year in Australia by saltwater crocodiles and those people usually aren't inviting tragedy upon themselves. He was very lucky. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> so, this brings us to the end of the episode.
1: But before we scamper, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. Thank you to Has Everything Deleted?
0: And also, uh, Malice Podcast. So, I've heard that's a great podcast. Um, it really looks into the psychology of murderers. And my friend Devin, hey, Devin, recommended it just a few days ago. So, The podcast is called Malice and uh, thanks for the review and I'm definitely going to check you out.
1: Well, Malice recommended us.
0: I know. Look at that. I know. This is it. See, that's
1: peace and love. That's what that is Mm. right there. No one got killed.
0: No one did. No one did. It was just all nice. It was like a virtual hug.
1: We've also got not a Zubat.
0: And also an uh, extra, extra large historian who seems to be writing a review a week right now, so thanks for mm, that.
1: Pro, 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 quite prolific.
0: <laughs> I know, but what if we shit him and he just, like, writes us a really yeah, mean one? Yeah, <laughs> don't turn on us, man. <laughs> yeah, he's like the ocean. Just don't turn your back on him. But uh, thank you for the love. We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team.
1: You know who else is awesome? Who? Our patrons. They we, are. we love them. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways.
0: For our May Prize, we're giving away a pair of Bloody Murder leggings. Look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms. Look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms. Look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms. <laughs> yeah, It's not convincing. I wasn't convinced.
1: For a chance to win, be a bloody murder patron at a level $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to Wesley Holden Crozier,
0: Dinny Beatty,
1: Bud Wilkinson,
0: Michelle Morland, and Evelyn Reese, who upped her pledge. Thank you so much,
1: everybody. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or oh, if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice. There's a PayPal donate button there, too. <coughs> <coughs> My thirsty voice makes me cough. <laughs> no, it does. You always fuck
0: yourself up with it. <laughs> probably makes you thirsty as well.
1: I've been Barney Black.
0: And I've been Tara Saravan. And
1: this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or on our Facebook page.
0: And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our fantastic group uh, on Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're bloody underscore murder underscore podcast.
1: Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our fabulous merchandise. We've added some new merchandise mm-hmm. items. We have COVID-friendly uh, face masks. There's a hey baby one there <laughs> and a keep kicking against the pricks air mask. Also, Bloody Murder socks.
0: Finally. It happened. I know. So thanks for sticking around and we'll be back very soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So, you know, it's
1: Friday today, Tara.
0: Actually, um, well, I figured because that's recording day. But also, I couldn't really be sure because, <laughs> you know, well, the, when this I, year.
1: Well, when I was awake at the crack of dawn well. this morning, uh, <laughs> hey. I could hear the rubbish trucks driving because they come every Friday morning. I, I remember to put the bins out. And every time that happens, I say to my girlfriend, I say, you, you're right here. Now, I, I know we've done this.
0: You've said this on air before. I
1: know, and I keep doing it. I keep oh, I keep God, saying it annoyed. every Friday morning.
0: I would punch you so much if I was her. Well,
1: this is what's happened, right? The first couple of times she laughed, she said, oh, yeah, that's kind oh, of yeah, funny. Oh, yeah, that's anymore. really funny. Then she got annoyed and just <laughs> said, you know, really? Come on. Are you going to do this every Friday morning?
0: I would be planning elaborate revenge myself. And then
1: it became funny again.
0: How the fuck did that happen? I don't
1: know. And now it's funny again. I'm just deconstructing really? comedy here.
0: It's funny again. Are you sure it's funny again? No. Or is she just like, you know, giving up? I have finished this
1: story. It was funny for a couple of weeks. Oh. Now it's not funny. But now she's getting really aggressive about it. She's yes.
0: Like, that, she's that's, saying, thank you.
1: What, what does that even mean? Does that mean I'm rubbish and, I, and I'm going back to the place where I live? Or, or, or do I work for the rubbish tip and I'm going to work? Am I a rubbish am I a rubbish person? Am I a garbage person? And I say yeah, I all of that. And still she's mad at me.
0: Maybe um Don't do it? Yeah, maybe don't do nah, it. No, I
1: don't think I can do that.
0: Well why why would it be so hard for you to uh, stop?
1: I could bring you. It's, it's, about, it's about 6.30 in the morning you know i would just bring you up and go it. your rights here, Tara You
0: know I wouldn't <laughs> fucking answer it, dude Oh, wow no. I would have to think of something really demonic to do to you after that I wouldn't take that shit line down
1: No, you'd mm. send me a photo essay
0: Yeah, of just dick pics that I found on the internet Because I know how much you hated it the first time I did that
1: Yeah, why, why are you allowed to do that? No, I'm not
0: Because I don't actually have one Oh, yeah. yeah, so it's not like I'm going, check me out, you want some, you want to stick it in the toaster, you want to stick it in your mouth, you want uh, to stick it in everywhere.
1: Uh, you sound jealous now, you're just super jealous because you don't have a willy.
0: Mm, yeah, some people would probably think that. I don't know, I'd, I'd give it a go, i will give it a go for a day or two, you check put it, it, it in out, a toaster. see what's
1: You would die.
0: Maybe I'd just get a tan, because you know I don't get a tan any other way, so it's worth a fucking shot.
1: So you having a dick means you're you would tan more easily
0: by toasting my dick in Oh time. right, this I'd is the level of champagne comedy we're at here. This is the Fraser level fucking caviar that we've come
1: to. Uh, I, I give up. Hi, I'm Barney
0: Black. <laughs> you know you're not going to keep that version because you sound fucking. Oh Jesus, I'm fucking Barney Black. What? <laughs> my darts have gone in the drink. <laughs> Oh, fuck, I, was good. I didn't like the dart, though, because, like, you know, it's petrol everywhere and I'm not one to not like the darts. Why aren't I at home? I don't live here. What am I doing somewhere that I don't live? It's weird. I got used to it, man.
1: This is a lovely home.
0: I'm not complaining about the quality of the home. I'm just saying I don't live here. It feels wrong to be anywhere that I don't live for well, this long.
1: Well, fuck off then, but just get this podcast out first.
0: <laughs> That's the plan, cunt.
1: Look, I'm not going to debate this with you and it's it's
0: Yeah, you're not going to win the debate on well, this with me. There are
1: plenty of tall people that d- date people shorter than them.
0: I know and that. And they seem
1: to go fine, so I yeah.
0: Oh yeah, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, how did that turn out?
1: That that was very good marriage actually. Yeah, really? Yeah. You think? Yeah.
0: Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito. No, they're both short. <laughs> but they have really they have big dick energy both of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's the best thing I've ever heard They have—they both, Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito have big dick energy They
0: do, BDE, BDE both <laughs> BDE squared when they're together ah. Jesus, that was some small dick energy right there
1: <laughs> You'll always say that about me
0: I'm very superficial Okay, good, good. I was worried we weren't going to talk about your dick or poo enough in this episode, but well, apparently you've, uh, you've got it covered, haven't you? Yeah,
1: well, you can calm the fuck down now because I've got it covered.
0: Okay, it's good to know. And honey, I was reading over the scriptures and I've interpreted them and realised that, that we're supposed to actually have a lot of threesomes. Um, so you up for it?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to do that.
0: Okay, well, also... Um, Scat play was something else that I noticed we're supposed to do more of?
1: Yeah, I'm not up for that too.
0: Okay. Have you ever weed on someone while you're doing it?
1: Mm, No.
0: Do you want to?
1: No, I don't want to.
0: (laughs) Okay. Rusty trombone though, Anne. Come on, everybody does a rusty trombone. My mum and dad, that's how they conceived me. Rusty trombone. Come on, Anne. Come on, Anne. Come on. All right, all
1: right, all right. I'll do it.
0: No, she did not. She stuck to her guns. She was like, All right, like, I won't do it. Yeah, fuck you, dickweed. Go rust your own trombone. You fuck oh. And they kept lying that it wasn't on. And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.